0: digging in the hat. So, uh, how can I uh, learn to control my anger and forgive when I feel wronged? Um, You know, uh, this is one of those things that uh, there isn't like a one, two, three uh, step process to. Um, There's uh, no... Secret hidden answer that I have to this that probably you don't already know Uh, When uh, someone asks, how can I learn to control my anger and forgive when I feel wrong what we're asking is a question about uh, character and uh, What we've been talking about or started talking about this weekend is sanctification The more you become like Christ the more you will be able to reign in The man of flesh that sinful nature that wages war against the new man inside of you Uh, the Bible says therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind be transformed by the renewing of your mind I tell uh, my youths all the time that uh, your brain needs to be like uh, a pickle (laughs) The way you put a cucumber in the jar, and as it sits there, over time, it turns from a cucumber into a pickle. Your mind needs to be transformed like that. It needs to be saturated in the Word of God. It needs to be saturated in the Word of God every day. It needs to be transformed by the renewing of the Word. The Word of God needs to be a constant influence on the way you think on the way you feel. The more you interact with it, the more it will convict you, the more it will arouse in you a desire to change and let go of those things which do not bring God glory. And as you do that, you will see that Christ, for His name's sake, will win more ground in your life in the areas where you fall short, uh, in the areas like anger. Uh, When it comes to forgiveness, we are commanded to forgive. Uh, The Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And again Christ says that unless you cannot forgive, uh, then neither can your Father in Heaven forgive you your sins. It literally suggests in the Bible that the measure with which you can forgive others, God will use it as a measure to forgive you. That doesn't mean that God's forgiveness is limited to human capacity of forgiveness. It just means that uh, basically if you're the kind of person who can't forgive, then you should examine whether or not you yourself have been forgiven. And then we have parables which uh, Jesus gives us that speak on the matter. Uh, For example, the servant who owned the master, a lot of money he couldn't pay, so the master forgives him, you know his 10 million debt. And then that servant went out the next day and he shook down uh, his friend for 100 bucks. And then the master called him back, and he said, "When I forgave you your great debt, uh, you're thankful for it, yet you can't forgive this man who owes you significantly less." And then in the parable, the master throws the servant into the jail. Uh, So forgiveness is something we're commanded to do. Forgiveness is something we are uh, expected to do. Uh, Jesus Christ says that uh, of the woman who couldn't stop weeping at his feet and washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. He says, uh, truly I tell you, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. Uh, Everybody in this room has much to be forgiven Everybody in here has much to be forgiven. the question is whether or not you realize just how much you've been forgiven. Because with the measure that you realize how much you've been forgiven, you will then in return be able to extend forgiveness that much. (coughs) How can I learn to control my anger? That's the same one. (laughs) The best way to let go of anxieties and fears Uh, Philippians chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, uh, with prayers and supplications and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Um, Anxiety, fear, anger, these are all complicated things because they're not uh, sins that uh, are like a one-time offense. You know, you tell a lie when you shouldn't have, you cheat on your tax return... You speed uh, excessively. Uh, these things you do when they're like a one time offense. You know, you did it, you know it was wrong, and it was a sinful act. But then there's a sinful disposition uh, that we need to realize that comes from the weakness and the frailty of a broken and fallen human nature. And uh, if we realize that those anxieties, those fears, those sentiments are rooted in our fallen nature. And give ourselves daily to the means of grace and trust the process. You trust uh, uh, the Bible, you trust the meditation of Scripture, you entrust yourself to prayer, you entrust yourself to fasting, you entrust yourself to private and public worship, you entrust yourself in the body of believers that God is edifying you and building you up whenever you are with Christians and uh, worshiping together. That will in turn have its effects if you claim all of that with faith. Uh, you know, a lot of these questions I like to compare to the, to the gym. I like to work out. And a lot of the times when people uh, come up to me and ask a question like this, they're basically, if I could give a metaphor, uh, they're basically, I, I think of someone who's new to the gym and they go and they see somebody lifting like three heavy plates on each side on the bench press. And they say, how can I do that? And your answer would be like, well, you do it the same way he's doing it but with a lot less weight. And you do it every day with a lot less weight. And then you slowly add more weight. And then you get there eventually. But you don't get there today, and you don't get there overnight. And uh, that's the case of anxiety too. Like how can I stop my anxiety? And the answer sometimes is you're probably an anxious person. And unfortunately that's one of the crippling effects that some people experience because of the fall. Some people have you know, clinical cases of anxiety. But with enough repetition of the means of grace and entrusting yourself to the gracious process that God has given us to grow in sanctification, you might just one day look back on yourself and say, I used to be really anxious about everything, and now I find that I a lot quicker trust myself into the hands of my God. So you do it the same way that the guy who's been there for three years is doing it. You do the same exercise, you just do it with less weight. You trust a little bit uh, more every day. You, you at least make a conscious decision to say, I feel anxious about this, but at the very least I have people around me uh, strengthening me in the Word and pushing me forward and upholding me in prayer and I'm going to trust God and take one step forward despite my anxiety in the right direction. And if you start off by making conscious decisions like that, uh, eventually you might find that where you used to think in order to get past your anxiety, you are now making like reflex decisions as a more mature Christian contra your previous anxious ways of life. It really is a process. There's no magic formula to becoming a mature Christian. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that Christ has to do in you. You must, like I said before, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is your advice for when it's hard to be a light because everyone, it seems like, is against you and making fun of you? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, if you are being made fun of for your faith, if you are being persecuted for your faith, uh, Christ says to us that if the world hates you, remember that they hate you because they first hated me. Uh, you see, the call to be a Christian in the Bible, if you read it in the New Testament, isn't actually a call to come follow Christ under generally good conditions. You know this is easy right now for me to preach to you guys and talk about Christ I'll tell you right now this is easy. Being a Christian among Christians is easy, but what Christ calls us to do is be a Christian among a world that in their nature people are at odds with God. that the sinful man is at enmity with God that means that by his nature, human beings, any person who is not saved. Is that enmity; they are like an enemy of God. So, if you encounter people who make fun of you for your faith, that means at least one thing uh, that you're probably doing a good job at letting them know you're a Christian. So, uh, and then another thing that means that you are gaining yourself treasure in heaven. That's what Christ says: know that your treasure in heaven, uh, and that your Father who is in heaven and who sees in secret will you in secret um, it is hard though still there's no doubt about it it's hard I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who says at one point that everyone abandoned me when I was persecuted when I was thrown in prison everyone abandoned me it was just me and Christ but because he was firmly founded in his faith because he had an experience of walking with the Lord um, that kept them even in the hardest times. Now, what practically you can do is, I would say, find avenues where where you can be re-strengthened in, in the Lord. Find Christian groups, uh, church. If you are in a church, that's bad. Uh, reach out to someone who, about that. Uh, tell them you don't feel like you have accountability. You don't feel like you have support. Reach out to your pastor, your youth leader. Uh, try to find like-minded Christians who can uphold you in prayer and where you can go and recharge your spirit and be re-strengthened in the Lord if you read the Old Testament the story of David when he was being persecuted by Saul for many years and he was running from one place to the other and he was despairing because of his faith and because of the persecution and the trials it brought him at one point it says that Jonathan Saul's own son and his best friend found David. And the Bible says, And Jonathan went to David to strengthen him in the Lord. We need that. We need people. We need the body of Christ. We need the other members of the body of Christ who have gifts of encouragement, who have gifts of a word that they can speak to us and to bless us and to strengthen us and to give us more umph and more energy to keep going. Uh, find that and... Uh, be steadfast in prayer and in, in, in growing in Christ. Bobby, yes? Would you
1: have this one to the?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Put it in here. Yeah. So the next one is, is sanctification the same as salvation? The answer is no. Uh, sanctification is part of the process of salvation we can speak of salvation in the sense of when we are justified when we put our faith in Christ alone god takes that perfect life that perfect righteous life that jesus christ lived in our place and he when alex believes in christ god the father imputes that righteousness of jesus christ to alex's account and now he looks at alex in the same way he looks at his own son and then after He's justified, begins the process of sanctification, which is being made you, the person Alex, being made to look more like Christ. And God gets glory from that, when He takes a man who by nature is sinful and corrupt, and out of that person creates and makes godliness happen. He, he gets glory from that. Even if no one sees it, he gets glory from that because God sees it and he gets pleasure from it. And then when that light shines brighter and brighter uh, around him and Alex grows in his maturity and he becomes president of the RBYA and he starts serving the Lord in a greater capacity, the angels of heaven see that and they say, Praise God who can take a sinful and corrupt man and out of him use him for the glory of the kingdom of Christ. Sanctification is the process of being made to look more like Jesus Christ, so that God can get His glory, and that you yourself can benefit and live more the fullness and the joy of the Christian life that it has to offer. Can something be a sin for me, but not for someone else? Yes, Um, the Bible says that anything that is not done in faith is sin to you. Uh, There are gray areas the Bible talks about, like when Paul says, well, if I feel okay with eating meat offered to idols, because I know that idols are nothing and that all meat should be received from the Lord with prayer and thanksgiving, but my brother, who is new to the faith, cannot bring himself to eat meat offered to idols because that just crushes his conscience. Paul says, then I will abstain from eating meat in his presence so as not to cause him to somehow sin." eating that meat. So there are things that to you uh, could be sin or to someone else could be sin because it has such a a, a grieving effect on their conscience and they just cannot do it their faith. And of course there are things that are sin for everybody and some people just try to say well it's not sin for me but you know it is. (laughs) Uh, can a regenerate Christian still fall into sins or be bound by sins? Uh, absolutely. Uh, David was called a man after God's own heart, and uh, after that he fell into sin with Bathsheba, and then he murdered one of his best friends too. If you, I don't know anybody like that, but <laughs> if I did, oh my I would definitely be tempted to think that that person's not really saved. And yet, if you read uh, David's psalm of repentance, he pleads with God take not your Holy Spirit away from me. That means that David knew he had the Spirit of God. And in light of such a horrible sin, he got to the point where he despaired of God removing the Holy Spirit from him. Uh, It's not a good thing when Christians fall. It's not something that brings glory to God. It wasn't awesome when Peter denied Christ three times, uh, but nor did Peter lose his salvation in that moment. However, uh, there's a very fine line sometimes. There's a very fine line between that's a Christian who fell into grievous sin and that's someone who is nominally a Christian but isn't born again. In 2 Corinthians it says that, worldly sorrow leads to death, and godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Now notice not neither worldly sorrow nor godly sorrow is repentance in and of itself. Worldly sorrow leads to death, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. If you have a godly sorrow over your sin, The Bible says you will repent, turn from your sin, come back to Christ. And that's what Peter did. He betrayed Christ, like Judas betrayed Christ, but Peter returned back. He repented of his sin, and he was reestablished. So Christians can fall into sins. Christians can sin. In fact, I'm going to uh, go ahead and say that you're all sinning right now. I'm sinning right now. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I will be the first to confess here that I can't do that for one minute of my life. I live in a perpetual state of existence where I cannot love God with my whole being all the time. Yet Christ did for me. And that life that He lived in continual obedience to the greatest commandments, that's the life of righteousness that God looks at me through. Um, So Christians can fall. Christians can sin. Christians can even sometimes fall into grievous sins. But God, who is a loving Father, will always chastise His children out of love and bring them back into a faithful walk. What about secular music? Um, uh, 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 it depends, really. Uh, it depends on the content of the music. Uh, I know. You know, God has a monopoly on truth, right? God has a monopoly on truth. He has a monopoly. He has a monopoly on goodness. He has a monopoly on all things that bring Him glory. There can be secular songs that are consistent with biblical truth, that don't glorify sin and worldliness. There can be songs like that. You can uh, mostly techno, but. (laughs) but It depends, right? It really does depend. Use prudence for many of these things. Ask yourself the question would I be able to play this song in my car if Jesus is riding shotgun? All right? (laughs) Usually, that tends to filter out a lot of the music. And, right? you know, 50 Cent in the club isn't usually on the top of the list when you ask that question. What about
1: you're working now? Because it's really hard to listen to, like, worship music. Anywhere it's really hard to listen to worship music. never really hard to listen
0: I listen. I listen to lectures on divine simplicity when I work out. Uh, and you like I said. What about when you work out? Sure. Uh, could you play that music on the speaker in your gym if Jesus was there? In the gym, right? <laughs> Not working out, but you know. Uh, you really ask yourself the question, would but, would I be ashamed if I got caught by Christ listening to this? Because make no mistake about it, He knows you're doing it. How do you deal with toxic Christians in your church and how do you... Um, how, do, how do you... Create I don't know how to work. What's that? Stoke? Stoic? Stoic. Stoic. No. Stroke? Want <laughs> me, me? 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 me try? <laughs> Yes, please. <sir. laughs> how do you strive? Strive to show them more of Christ. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, Well... Um, you know, a healthy church is one where church discipline is present. When you know your brothers in sin, Jesus says, "Go to them and speak to them addressing their sin. If they listen to you, you have one your brother. If they don't listen to you, you go with two or three other witnesses that everything may be established, and if they listen, then you have one your brother. If they don't listen to you and the two or three others, then it might be a case where you need to go to elders in the church and uh, try to bring them back now. not all Christians live in like open sin you know like sometimes what we're talking about is like well they're living with somebody in secret and you know sleeping around and stuff like that but what about Christians who are like uh, you know like not quite something you could accuse them of but they're just obviously not spiritual Uh, you know uh, you need to still do the first two steps at least not every matter needs to be brought before the church. That's the truth. But th- there's power in those first two steps. Uh, you go to them with a sincere heart and you talk to them about what's on your heart. Uh, now, this is important because if you're not the kind of person who they can take that from because you yourself are not living the right way, then that's a problem, right? Uh, so first you've got to make sure, like Jesus says, you take the log out of your own eye before you can pluck this speck out of your brother's eye. You don't want to come off as a hypocrite. So make sure you yourself are being faithful. Make sure you yourself are in Christ. And make sure you yourself are doing what you can do to exemplify the love of Christ and someone who is pursuing godliness. Uh, That's really the best way you can show someone how to strive more for Christ is by you yourself being that role model for someone. Uh, Now, if they themselves uh, have that in you, and they're still doing toxic things, then you might become the kind of person in their life who you could go up to them and be like, can I talk to you about something? Uh, Well, yeah, I have this in my church a lot. I've gone up to close friends, and I've gone up to acquaintances, and uh, not long ago, I heard about one guy who I'm pretty close with, who goofed up and... Uh, I heard he drank a bit much in front of some friends, some of them not saved, one of them a recent Christian, a recent convert, recent baptized guy, and I went, and I had the kind of relationship with him where I could uh, uh, kind of smack him twice over the back of the head and give him a a lecture and uh, speak to him about it, man to man, and have him, you know, he kind of bowed his head down a little bit, and uh, he said, yep, you know, I know, I goofed up. I messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, He apparently apologized to all those guys too. Uh, I wasn't there when it happened. There was other brothers in the church who spoke to him on it too. It works. The process works. When good, healthy Christians are present in the church and they go address the, uh, the unspiritual Christian, it works. That's what Paul says. You who are spiritual, lift. Up those who are not spiritual with gentleness love and patience you know you don't go there the process of church discipline is never to like hack somebody down and be like you're such a sinner look at you you know it's to restore them back to faith it's to make them again be a light that shines brightly for Christ what to do if you are not born again Uh, you must be born again you must be born again if you're not born again, uh, here's the thing. The, the Bible's a little bit mysterious on the subject. It says that the Spirit does the work. He, you know, uh, when we read John chapter 3, the word in uh, uh, Greek there is pneuma. Uh, when, God's, when Christ says to Nicodemus, the Spirit blows here and there, no one can tell it's coming and going, so it is with the Spirit. The word for spirit and wind is pneuma. So he's saying the pneuma goes here and there. And so it is with the pneuma. And it's the same, same with uh, the Hebrew language. It's the word ruach. It's the same for wind. It's the same for spirit. But what Jesus is trying to say to Nicodemus is that you can't reign in the wind any more than you can reign in the spirit of God. So the spirit sovereignly goes where he wills and regenerates the heart of man. Yet... At the same time, the Bible affirms this. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart and confess with your mouth that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. When the question again was asked to Peter on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized and you shall be saved. When the jailer asked, What must I do to be saved? And later in the book of Acts, they answered back and said, Repent, believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved. What you can do if you're not born again is completely and wholly entrust yourselves into the arms of Christ to save your soul and to give you eternal life. That's what you must do if you're not born again. The work of regeneration is God. You as a person, your job is to repent, to believe, (coughs) and to trust on God, to trust on Christ for salvation and eternal life. (coughs) What pastor's books were instrumental in your sanctification, growing in the faith, apart from the Bible, of course? Yeah, so... um, I listened to uh, when, I was, mm, uh, when I was freshly born again. I had the opportunity because of my job to plug in a lot. I work in tiles so I can plug in all day. And I actually, for the first year I was uh, regenerate, I had this pattern uh, I got into. Uh, so here it is. From uh, in the morning, <laughs> and this doesn't everybody doesn't have to do this, I'm just telling you. In the morning what I did is I did, and I still do this now, a devotional from the Psalms and Proverbs, and then I would pray and I would go to work. Then from the beginning of uh, the workday to lunchtime, I listened to the Old Testament on audio Bible, because the Old Testament is mostly narrative and stories, so you can Listen to it. Uh, Then I would hit pause after three and a half hours of audio Bible while working from Old Testament. And what I did is, during lunchtime, I made a habit to read at least seven chapters from the New Testament. Then after lunchtime, what I did is, for the rest of the day, listen to, and I, I devoured, John MacArthur's sermons. Because on his app, Grace to You, he has sermons on every single verse of the New Testament. So what I did is I took one book at a time or one subject at a time and I would just go through it till I was done and choose another one. So morning to lunch, Old Testament, lunch, to the end of the workday, New Testament and sermons. Uh, other than that, I listened to other things. Uh, I listened to Ligonier, uh, R.C. Sproul was instrumental for me. I love uh, this preacher who's African. His name is Conrad Mbewe. Uh, You can listen to his sermons on uh, Sermon Audio. Um, uh, Derek Thomas, Sinclair Ferguson. I listened to John Piper. Uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, he wrote books. I read The the Institutes of uh, the Christian Religion by John Calvin. I read uh, a a good book you should read, and I recommend this to everybody, is The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. If you want the good... good or better understanding of how God is presented in the Word of God, in the Bible. It's a relatively small book, and the chapters are concise, but very powerfully written. It's called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. I recommend it to everyone to read. I recommend it to everyone to read. Other than that, I devoured Spurgeon sermons. I got into a habit on my weekends to read Spurgeon sermons. I bought the eight volumes of his sermons and I'm like several volumes in now. Uh, I read Puritan writings a lot Thomas Watson, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, Richard Baxter, uh, Samuel Rutherford. Um, These are already things that you don't necessarily need to go into, but what I did is I said, I want to know basically as a Christian what my faith is and that took me back to the Protestant Reformation. Right? Why am I not a Catholic? Why am I a Protestant? What does the Bible teach? And when I read all these guys, I felt like I grew in my faith more and more and my understanding of the Bible deepened. (coughs) Uh, Can the Holy Spirit leave a Christian? Uh, No. Uh, I believe that if the Holy Spirit has been sealed... In you, The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, uh, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you believed as a guarantee, as a guarantee of your salvation. Uh, and Christ says, those whom the Father has given me are mine, and I shall lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. And... Um, Again, the Bible speaks over and over again about the absolute uh, and, and, and consummate salvation of those. We read it yesterday in Romans chapter 8. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Right? Those, meaning all of those whom He called. All of those whom He justified. All of those. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. I have a hard time envisioning how a new creation can uh, go back, as it were, to the old creation. There are many times I pray and don't even feel like I'm really communicating with God. What are ways to overcoming that, or even if there is doubt there? Um, Yeah. Uh, I I sympathize with You. There are times when I have a hard time in my prayer life too. There are times when I'm praying and I feel like I need to stop in the middle of my prayer and say to God, "Uh, Lord, my mind is drifting right now. I don't even feel like You're there. I'm just being honest with You. There are times now where I feel like I need to say to God, I feel like my prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. And then I just start pleading with God, God, Teach me to pray. Teach me how to pray. Um, There was that passage in the Bible where the man says to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. You could pray to God and say, here I am praying, help my prayerlessness. Help me to pray. Uh, However, uh, prayer is somewhat similar to... What's that? Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um... There are times when we need to be like the woman at the Gadarenes and who keeps coming and begging and begging and Jesus says, I mean, really, what would you do if if you were praying and you said to God or to Christ, uh, I want to pray, I want to know that I'm heard and Christ didn't answer. Is the right answer to stop praying? Because when that woman was praying to Jesus and begging him, and he ignored her, she persisted forward. And she said, Lord, help me. And then people, the disciples of Jesus, tried to shoo her away and said, leave him alone. And again she persisted and said, Lord, help me. And then he turned around and he said, it is not right to take the bread from the children and give it to dogs. Because she wasn't an Israelite. And she said, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. If you hear silence from heaven, why don't you get down on your knees again and say, Lord, I'll take the crumbs. But give me something. Persist. Bring the word of God back to him. Claim his promises. Read, read the Bible. Take verses from the Psalms and pray them to God. One of the old Puritans said, Christ loves it when you sue him with his words. <laughs> when you take the word of God and say to him, this is what you gave me, Lord. Please make good on it. Please make good on it. Christ will make good on it. He honors his word. What is a simple yet convicting way to share the gospel to people who are uh, uh, uh recent Christians or with people who have strong anti-christian opinions well um, if people will hear you uh, one of the best ways to share the gospel is to probably learn one of the programs that are available Uh, i would recommend for example ray comforts method to share the gospel with non-christians i think it's really good he basically asks them, If you die today, would you go to heaven? If they don't believe in heaven, He even says to them, Okay, grant for a second that there is a heaven, that God, the God of the Bible really is the God who will judge you. If you were to die, and He judged you by His Ten Commandments, what would be the outcome? And surprisingly enough, if you watch those videos, most of the time people say, Well, I guess I would go to hell. And then He just kind of ignores the fact that they claim they don't believe, Because he, in his mind, as a Christian, he knows that Romans chapter 1 teaches that all people have a knowledge of the living God, although they suppress it in unrighteousness. So he says, does that concern you? And they go, not really, because I don't believe. Maybe they might say that. And then he says, okay, well it concerns me because I've come to know that God of the Bible is the true and living God. And then he begins to share the gospel with them. And he says, do you know what Christ did? Do you know what the Bible says that Christ did? Uh, we, we did this with a group of our guys at church in the last year, we went to the flea market, we evangelized people, and we told them about how Christ suffered and died for his sins, that if he puts his, uh, a particular man I'm talking about, if he puts his faith in Christ, that his righteousness would be accounted to him, and I told him the gospel, and the guy was like, I've never heard that version of the gospel, and I said, well that's the gospel of the Bible, that's the good news that you don't work for your salvation, that Christ labored for it, and that if you put your faith in Him, you can be reconciled with God. Uh, with Christians that are recent Christians, that's the gospel they need to hear. Uh, look, guys, uh, Paul says in the New Testament to the Corinthians, I did not come to you with lofty arguments and philosophy uh, with philosophies. I came rather with the message of the cross so that I might not be robbed the cross of its power. He basically says, as much as I could, I tried to present to you the clear, unadulterated message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Romans he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, because it is the power of God unto salvation. Where the gospel is faithfully preached, that's where God can work. Your job is not to save people. You will do your job and glorify God in faithfully communicating the message of salvation. That's your task. You're the messenger. A king in the ancient world, when he sent the messenger, the one thing the messenger had to absolutely get right, without a doubt, they had to communicate the exact message that the king sent him with. That was his job. That is the Christian's job to a dying world. They must first know the real Gospel. Because there's a lot of versions of the Gospel today. And what's important is to know the real Gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, and you will do your job faithfully if that's the Gospel you communicate. I don't believe necessarily in friendship evangelism. I don't think you first need to be someone's friend in order to open up the discussion of the Gospel with them. I think if that's what you believe, then what you're basically saying is that only those who are in a close circle of friendship with you are worthy of hearing the message of salvation. If that's what you believe, then that's a flawed presupposition because everyone needs to hear the Gospel. Christ in the Great Commission commands the Gospel to be taken to the ends of the earth and that it be preached to every living creature. What does it mean to actually be born again? To be born again means that the Spirit of the Living God has changed your heart and opened your eyes to the beauties and the wonders and the truths of the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that those truths He then applies to your life and in your life makes them real. How that looks like to you as a, pure, as a person and what you must do, I said earlier. You must repent and believe and lay claim of Christ. Look, if you do it once and you don't feel like it happened, do it again tomorrow. If you feel like you pleaded with Christ once and it hasn't happened, perhaps there's some sin you're holding on to. Why don't you examine yourself? Do it again. Like I said, if you hear silence from heaven, why don't you come before Christ again and again and again and beg for the crumbs? That's how a beggar comes. That's how we come to the cross. We come as beggars. We don't come proud. We don't come with a feeling of, okay, let's go, Lord. You promised some kind of uh, salvation here. I'm not seeing it. Where's it at? That's not the attitude we come to the cross with. In the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector was beating his chest And it goes like this. He could not even look up. His head was bowed down and he could only scream out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that man went home justified. That's what it means to be born again. God has given you new life, new inclinations, new desires, and those desires pertain to Christ. They don't come out ...out of the woodworks like a big, full, mature Christian all the time. You don't just walk into new life like Gerald Spurgeon. But where before there was no inclination to follow Christ, now there is a desire. Where before there was no conviction and brokenness over sin, now there's conviction and brokenness over your sin. I remember Paul Washer gave uh, an example, and he says, let me give you an example. A man is headed to work, some of you may have heard this, he's out the door... Uh, The wife says, honey, before you go out, can you throw out the trash? And the guy turns around and he goes, what's wrong with you? Don't you know I'm late for work? I'm rushing to a meeting. Now, all the time, you want to tell me to throw out the trash as I'm walking out? No! And then he goes to work and he feels completely justified. And then he says, six months later, the guy is born again. And then the next day he goes and does the same thing. Again, honey, can you take out the trash? And he does the same thing. He says, what's wrong with you? Can't you see that I'm late for work? Can't you see that this and that? No! And then he goes to work. But then Paul Asher says, what's the difference? He says, the difference is the man who was born again gets to work. And he thinks to himself, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, how could I have done that? It wasn't right. That was the old me. He calls his wife. He apologizes. He repents of his sin. That's one of the markers of the new man, is that they are repenting of their sin continually. It's not a one-time thing you do when you have faith in Christ. It's a lifestyle Repentance is a lifestyle. I like the way that, in Romanian, they call Christians who are not Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, It literally translates into English as repenters. It's not someone who repented once, it's someone who continues to repent. They are repenting and living a lifestyle of repenting. How do you soften your heart? You don't, God does. And uh, what you can do is put your heart before the God who can soften it in the means of grace. Like I said earlier, bring yourself before the Word of God. Bring yourself to prayer. Subject yourself to fasting. Subject yourself to the things God can offer you as a means by which He can sanctify you and make you more like Christ. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Scriptures say, and He will lift you up. Humble yourself. If you have a hard heart, a callous heart, a cynical heart, come to God in prayer and say, Lord, I'm a cynical person. I'm a, I'm a person who doesn't have much feeling for the things of God. Please, God, give me a greater understanding. The psalmist in Psalm 119 put it like this, and that's why I so often love to pray it before a sermon. Open the eyes of my heart, that I might behold wondrous things out of Your Word. I have a friend that I've been trying to witness to since high school, but every time I, um, I uh, bring up anything about Christianity, he has a hard time understanding why I would devote so much time and why he needs God. How, when he lives a satisfactory life already, can you give any advice as to what I can do? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, First of all, you need to be praying for this person. You need to be praying for this person. I can tell you one thing is true. That uh, Now, I'm not accusing the person who wrote the question that they're not praying. But I will say this. That if you have a heart to see somebody saved, and you're not praying for them, you're what you're doing is you're not petitioning on their behalf the only one who can save them. Think about that. What are you doing for this person then? The second thing is you must take the true unadulterated gospel of Christ, make it known to this person, and then exemplify it to them in your life too. Remember, it is not the prerogative of the Christian to save. The duty of the Christian is to present the gospel faithfully both in word, to back it up by the lifestyle of a saved person, and, of course, to intercede for the lost in prayer. You need to be steadfast for them in prayer. I know in the, uh, the Western world, where we live we live cushy lives, it can make, uh, people can sometimes have a hard time seeing why they would need Christ. But that's why the real gospel is so important in a culture like this, because it addresses the sinful heart of humans. And that that is... Like, that message stretches across time, stretches across borders, stretches across any point in history. It is applicable at all times. The real gospel of Christ is always applicable. You need to make them aware of their sinfulness and of their desperate need for Christ. What should you do when a Christian friend doesn't see the errors of their way? I think we kind of touched on this already. Trust the process given to us. Go to them. Go with (coughs) one or two or three other friends and make sure you yourself are the kind of person who is living such a life that can address them in their sin. What is your best advice for when you don't feel like reading your Bible, but know you need to? Uh, My best advice is to do it regardless of whether or not you feel like doing it. Uh, Again, to use the uh, to use the example of the gym, you can ask my wife. Most of the time, I'm heading there like this. Uh, I don't really feel like doing right now. Uh, <laughs> I really don't want to do this right now. Like this is, I'm just complaining, complaining on my way out the door as I'm putting the key into the ignition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And I'm driving my way there. And that, hey,
0: reading the Bible is a discipline. What do you expect? You're a sinful person by nature. I'm, I've yet to see a Christian who gets up in the morning and like, I can't wait to be holy today. I just want to be holy all the time. I can't wait to read my Bible right now. Gosh, that's what I want to do. And then they go downstairs and they got verses posted on the wall and they're like, you know, I haven't met that Christian yet. I told the, I think it was in our small group the other day, I got into a habit for a A little while where I stopped doing those morning devotionals of the Psalms and Proverbs because I said, you know, we're so busy right now. I'm on my way. I'm barely sleeping Uh, uh, because of work. I'm on my way out the door every morning. I need to get that extra half hour, 40 minutes of sleep to work. Uh, I'll just put it off for a week while I'm busy. Well, uh, you know, the, the hard phase at work passed. And then what I found is that I just started looking at my phone in the morning for one minute to wake up. Two minutes, three minutes. And then pretty soon I found myself that I was looking at my phone in the morning for 20 minutes. And I wasn't doing my Proverbs and Psalms devotional anymore. And then I realized, what am I doing? You know, what what am I doing? And I said that to myself a few times. Don't get me wrong. There's a few mornings where I said, no, not again tomorrow. I won't do this again tomorrow. And then I realized, you know, I actually don't have a desire to do it anymore. That's the problem so what I did is I said despite the fact that I don't feel like doing it I'm gonna do it so what I did is I set Siri to remind me because my alarm is at 620 and I said Siri at 625 you know I said the reminder for like two weeks at 625 remind me to give glory to God And so I woke up, I'd look at my phone, like I started doing, and five minutes later, Siri would pop up on my screen while I'm on Facebook, ta-da, give glory to God. So I would roll out of bed and say, yep, I have to give glory to God. So I'd go find my place again, read the Proverbs, read the Psalms. And uh, pretty soon I found that I wanted to do it again. You know, they asked Ravi Zachariah once, uh, if I don't want to pray, what do I do about it? Maybe I should have said this earlier. And he said, first you pray because you know you have to pray. Then you pray because you want to pray. Then you pray because you like to pray. And then you'll pray because you love to pray. It's a discipline. It's a discipline you build. It's like a spiritual muscle you have to develop. You do it despite your feelings. No one's asking you to feel like to read your Bible. I never asked you to feel like that. I hope no one's asking you to feel like to read your Bible. You're just being told, read your Bible. Don't ask your emotions permission to be obedient to God. Because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your feelings. They will betray you. Do what you know Is right do what you know the Lord requires of you how do you talk about God to an agnostic friend the same way you talk to a Buddhist friend and the same way you talk to any other friend you give them the gospel now of course you can also take a special interest in apologetics and you can Be obedient to 1 Peter 3.15, where it says at all times, be ready to give an answer for the faith that is in you. So if you have a particular relationship with a person, and you know that it might benefit them, and would benefit them, if you educated yourself a little bit on how to respond to their particular worldview, maybe go do that. Look at the resources, how to interact with and discuss with agnostics about uh, the Gospel. You know, most of the time agnostics are basically atheist light. Right? So uh, you can just uh, <laughs> you can just go to the sources that address the issue, get educated, do your homework and address that. But always, always, at the center of your conversations you must lead with the gospel of salvation. I'll say it again it alone is the power of God unto salvation. When are we going to? We can go until 5. Till 5? How can I talk to someone and convince them that my God is real when they believe in another religion? Uh, same answer as before. <laughs> Get interested maybe in their religion so that you can show them perhaps where it is inconsistent with truth and then point them to the Gospel. How do you know if you're a true Christian? How to self-examine yourself? Well, the Bible says examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. And the only measure by which we have to examine ourselves is the Canon of Scripture. So examine yourself to the Word of God. What are the characteristics of a true Christian? And then again, you can ask yourself some broader uh, principle-like questions like, do I long for holiness? Do I want to be sanctified? Do I want to be rid of sin? Am I seeking after God? Am I giving myself more into the Word? Am I seeing growth in my life? If I look back at who I was when I wasn't saved, and if I look back, and if I look now uh, at the person who I am now, can I say, you know, like Vodibakim to say, I'm, I ain't who I used to be. Uh, I ain't who I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not who I used to be. Right? A true Christian should be able to look back. Now, if you're a recent convert, again, examine yourself in light of Scripture and seek as to whether or not, by the Word of God instructing you, whether or not those things are true of you, of a born-again Christian. Is the Bible against earrings? uh, Where does it say that? Um, I've seen some earrings that are sinful, for sure. Uh, I don't care. (laughs) Look, uh, I'll tell you this. The Bible in the Old Testament, uh, we see... We see instances where jewelry is put on godly women. When the servants of uh, I'm drawing a here. They went to go find a wife for Isaac, Rebecca. Uh, it says that when she gave water to the camels, and it was God's answer to Abraham's servant that this was the wife for Isaac. It tells us that he then went and like basically jeweled her up. He put like a nose ring in her and gave her earrings, like. It was like a, an offering of like, you are worth much value to that kind of thing. Now in the New Testament it says to girls, and guys can take this too, let not your beauty come from outward apparel, not from jewelry and gold and the way you dress, your beauty shouldn't come from that, but rather let it come from the spirit of a godly woman. Let that be the source of your beauty. If you put an emphasis on your spiritual life, I think often that will kind of uh, dictate the way you dress yourself uh, and, and, and present yourself to other human beings. I mean, definitely, I'll tell you, I don't care. Don't put an earring in your ear that stretches your earlobes to like an inch hole. Oh, that's gross. No? Please don't do <laughs> that. Why does God give you a strong desire for something, but not... Why does God give you a strong desire for something good, but not give it to you? Is the desire not from God? It is. Is it unfulfilled? Yes, so... Uh Sometimes we can desire things that are not from God. That is true. The Apostle John says, and we have this confidence, that if we ask all things, in okay, let's see if you guys can correct me. If we ask anything we desire, He will give it to us. Well, what does it say in the Bible? If we ask all things according to His name, He will give it to us. And Jesus Christ against us in the Gospels, but whatever you ask in my name, He will give it to us. And James says, when you pray, you don't get what you ask for, because you ask not rightly. You do not ask according to God's will, and when you do, you ask for your own gain. Whoops. Like, there there seems to be a kind of promise in the Bible that says this, that if you are the kind of person that aligns themselves with the will of God, as it is revealed in the Word of God... That will show in the way you pray to God. You will find yourself asking and praying for the things that are, in, that are in accordance with His will and in accordance with the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that I can... What does that mean? That doesn't mean I can just say, Lord, give me a new Bentley in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 <laughs> Amen. <laughs> asking something in the name of Jesus isn't basically just adding in the name of Christ, Amen, at the end of your prayer. Asking something in the name of Jesus means that you are asking it in accordance with everything that name represents and stands for. You are asking for something in accordance with and in allegiance with everything the name of Jesus stands for. That's what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. It's not just saying, I I believe (laughs) there's a Jesus, I'm saved. No, it means to trust yourself in all of the work and person of Christ. Uh, So I would say, first of all, examine whether or not your desires are in line with the Scriptures. Now the question does say, what if God gives you a desire for something good? I'm not sure what you mean by that, but let's say it is for something good, as in the sense of, in line with the Bible. Perhaps the answer for now is wait. There are portions in the Bible where we are instructed to wait on the Lord. Right? Maybe it said no. Because maybe God's will for your life is not to do that, not to go there. I don't know what it is you're referring to. Uh, however, I know this, our prerogative is not to know the secret counsel of God for our lives. It's not to know, who am I supposed to marry, Lord? Who was I talking to yesterday? You. <laughs> she wasn't asking about marriage, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> But I was basically saying, look, I despise it when I hear, and I love my charismatic brothers and sisters, I love Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but I despise it when I hear, I was going to do X, but then I went to a prophet and he says, you are not to marry that man because you're supposed to marry someone from Somalia or something like that. And so I didn't marry that guy. That's happened. I know people like that. My jaw drops when I hear that. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That which has been given to you is for you, but the secret things belong to God. We are not to seek out the secret counsel of the Lord. Do you see anywhere, Alex, in the Bible where it says, Alex, you need to go serve in the RBYA? Then how did you know it was the will of God for you? Because you based your actions on certain godly principles that God has revealed (coughs) to you in the Bible. Your duty is to obey the commandments of God. Your duty is to align your character with the precepts of God. Your duty is to bring yourself into total submission to God in the way that you live. And in light of that, you can make godly decisions. The Bible doesn't tell me the exact person I need to marry, but it tells me what to look for in a spouse, what a godly woman is like what a godly man is like. It tells me to marry in the Lord. It tells me what can darkness have in common with light. These are all principles I can use, for example, in the example of marriage. These are all principles I can use to discern in my life whether or not I am acting in accordance with the will of God. So whether or not it's good is dependent on whether or not it's in accordance with the will of God as it is revealed in the Bible not the will of God, as in the secret will of God, referring to what will happen with your uh, life today, tomorrow, or next week. Uh, I think that's it for the questions in the hat.
1: Wow.
0: Do you have a question? Okay, hold, hold, up. hold up. Okay, listen up, guys.
1: If you have a question that you want to follow up with or ask right now, make a line. Yes. And if you guys want to ask this... Something after her, go now, please. And wait in line and wait your turn if we have time, the time we'll get we'll get to it, okay? So um in the past year I've is this is this on? Yeah. Yes? Okay. So in the past year I've become like closer friends with Pentecostals in our area and I was just curious about like why do we pray individually and not like as a like big group like they do. So I just wanted to ask about that. Um
0: the the matter of why we pray individually or as a grou- big group is just a matter of uh, of uh, the freedom of public worship so god tells us in his word that in the public worship we need to have the preaching of the word for the edifying of the saints we need to have corporate prayer which is all the christians together praying we need to have worship we are commanded to teach each other through songs hymns and spiritual songs so we need to have worship through song These are things that the Bible commands us to do. And now when it comes to the issue of what time of the day on Sunday should we meet? In what order to do that? How many songs should we choose? Which songs should we choose? Who should pray? How many people should pray? These are matters of uh, Christian liberty. Uh, Certain traditions found it more effective and efficient to pray all at once. Uh, They usually base, though, their decisions on something in theology. So... Normally, in Pentecostal churches, they will say, since God is omniscient and all-knowing, it makes sense to have as many people as possible pray, because then God will hear more prayers and more people will pray. The Baptists traditionally have said, hold on, in the Bible, in the book of Corinth, it says, let everything be done in order, because God is a God of order. So then they say, should we not then, when we are together, each pray out loud, and then the rest of the body of Christ sustain that brother in their prayer. So the way they see prayer, Baptists in their tradition, is that one brother will pray, and the rest of the body of Christ should unite their hearts and minds, uh, like uh, Vasil said, uh, consciously thinking about what the other person is praying, and uphold them in prayer, letting them lead them in prayer before the throne of God. So there's nothing wrong with either or. There's just usually an emphasis, something theologically that's behind the decision to do that. Um, Presbyterians only have the ministers usually pray in certain churches. Uh, They will have the minister pray only for a few times in the service, and the congregation is to unite behind him in prayer. Nobody in the church prays out loud, except the minister. I've heard different takes on this, but can you lose your salvation? Uh, John 1st John chapter I don't want to get this wrong. You can see the 1st John chapter 2 or 3, 2, two. okay. That was, uh, yeah. First John chapter 2, John says, "They have gone out from us." that it might be made known that they were never of us. For if they were ever of us, then they would have continued with us. That being said, there are warnings in the Bible against falling away from the faith, which seem to imply that you could fall away from the faith. How do we reconcile the two? Because God doesn't contradict Himself. Uh, I reconcile them in the fact that, in the author of the book of Hebrews, when he gives warnings about losing your salvation, he seems to be speaking in a hypothetical manner. At the end of when he gives the warnings of losing your salvation, he says, but brethren, we are sure, we are sure, Of greater things concerning you, things pertaining to salvation. So he seems to suggest there that the warnings against um, falling away from the faith are means that God uses to keep Christians in the faith. They are like the bumper plates in a bowling alley. You know what I mean? You can't go into the gutters and strike out if the bumper plates are there to keep you in the lane. So I would say that that's the most theologically orthodox way to reconcile the warnings against falling away from the faith, the promises that we can't fall away from the faith, and the fact that John says that those who do fall away only prove that they were never of us, for if they were really of us, he says, they would have continued with us. Any more questions? Yes?
1: on the way here to uh, had somebody ask this question and I never really <laughs> it was a really deep question and one of the ones was uh couldn't accurately answer it but he's saying that um, if someone um, is on the bridge of death and they commit suicide is that automatically when the suicide happens that they automatically lose their salvation they end up in hell or how is the how do we deal with the topic of suicide
0: yeah um Look, I know some people have historically taught that suicide is basically a ticket to hell. Um, In some cases, it does prove that a person wasn't really saved when they do such a horrible thing and and deeply uh, saddening thing. Um, But the only unpardonable sin that I read of in the scripture is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I know people who have genuine mental illness. Genuine mental illness that causes like violent episodes of depression. It's hard for me to speak to those situations from an experiential point of view because I've never felt mildly depressed, let alone violently depressed. whether or not someone takes their life right before they die, and that kind of a suicide is is like uh, uh, a, a desire to 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 like um, extinguish life, contrary to the word of God. It's really hard to say. Uh, I'm against euthanasia, which is the uh, putting people to death. Uh, 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 Historically, it has been taught that in the Sixth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not murder, uh, that is the negative side of the commandment, meaning that the positive side would be, rather, you shall do every effort to preserve life, because man is made in the image of God. And uh, that's why God even institutes the death penalty in the Old Testament. He says, For whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for man has created... Was created in the image of God. Um, I don't believe suicide necessarily means someone's going to hell. I don't believe it necessarily means that, no. Uh, I do entrust, though, such difficult cases into the hands of a faithful judge who the Bible says shall by no means do wrong. I believe that God is more than adequately equipped to uh, Handle such difficult and sensitive situations but I don't believe that suicide is an unpardonable sin. I do believe that more often than not it might reveal a lack of spiritual life, um, though I can't speak that to every situation. Again, I cannot speak to every situation. There are such difficult situations, there are such tragic situations and they most certainly at a very divine level, would be considered on a case-by-case kind of level. Yeah. Okay.
1: This will be our last one. Last question. (laughs) So, um, for those of us that have grown up in the church and have been constantly bombarded with everything that you know, is good for us. Um, Is it a requirement? I know that when you hear a lot of people's testimonies, they have the testimony of, you know, I prayed and God just kind of enlightened me all of a sudden, and the next day I became a different person. Um, Is that a requirement to be a regenerate person? Or if you have found yourself on your knees repenting before God multiple times and have seen progress in your life, since, you know, you've been baptized or since you, you know... I mean, some of us prayed the prayer when we were 12 yeah. or when we were 10 and ever since have been in there. Do we have to have that incredible testimony of I, you know, was on my knees and the next day I woke up and I dropped everything and I became different?
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, I would say uh, that's not a requirement for being born again. That, uh, that amazing night and day difference in my life is not a requirement for being born again. Um, The reason I say this is because some people are raised up in the faith from a young age. Uh, They are uh, regenerate from a young age, and they couldn't even tell you what day they were born again. They just know that at this present time, they trust themselves wholly to the living Christ. Uh, John the Baptist, in the Bible it says that from the time he was in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you ask that man, when were you born again? he would be like, I couldn't tell you. I was too little. I don't even remember it when it happened. In the book of Ephesians, it says, Fathers and mothers, train your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And then Paul even gives a commandment to children and says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He's assuming there's children in the Lord. That is one of the promises of the Gospel that we see a pattern of this in the New Testament that typically God saves households and individuals in those households. Peter uh, on the day of Pentecost says, repent, believe and be baptized for you shall be baptized for the promises are to you and to your children and for those who are far off. And in the book of Acts, over and over again, we see that an entire household is baptized at a time. The whole jailer's household was baptized, including the children. There are instances where God works in a young child's life, new life, and they are literally raised up in the Lord. And they are also supposed to be pillars and beacons which on this earth shine forth the glory of God and God takes pleasure in them and he puts them forward in the world to show that God is a mighty Savior. So no, you don't need to have that amazing night and day transformation. What you need to know is that right now, and you need to answer that question, am I right now entrusting myself into the hands of the faithful Savior? All right?